Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Joel, and I'm one of the pastors here at Res City. Uh, if it's your first time joining us with uh, joining with us here on a Sunday morning, uh, whether here in person or online, I just want to offer you a special welcome and thank you for joining us uh, in worship and joining us in this uh, series that we've been doing here at Res City, uh, which we're calling Rebuilding Around Jesus. I'm going to pray, and then we will uh, spend some time uh, um, going through God's Word and really focusing in on, on Jesus specifically like we've been doing in this series. Lord, be with us this morning as we um, encounter a heavy topic, kind of a tough one, uh, one that is, is, a, is a bit of a challenge sometimes to think through and, and has caused a lot of people a lot of, a lot of pain or hurt. Um, I pray that you would uh, be with us, comfort those who need comfort, um, give uh, hope to those who need hope um, as we really focus in on the ultimate um, vision for hope that you give us in your son, Jesus, Lord. Help us to remain focused in on him uh, this morning for the rest of our time gathered. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we are in a series, we kind of have been throughout the fall, where we are kind of uh, talking about the topic that sometimes is called deconstruction. Um, and like we've talked about, that can mean a lot of different things for a lot of people. It can just mean sort of asking some questions, maybe changing your view on some things within the faith. Uh, sometimes it means completely leaving the faith altogether. And this is a sort of a big issue I know for a lot of people in the church right now, as we're sort of at a bit of an inflection point maybe, uh, especially among um, the generation of many people represented in this room. And so we wanted to take some time as a church to say, you know, what does it look like for us to, you know, to ask hard questions, to do this thing that we think is, is a good thing for the church to do, uh, but do it in such a way that we're building back around Jesus. And we're asking ourselves the question, you know, maybe we don't always have it all figured out, but today, what does it look like for me to follow Jesus? To take, put one step kind of in front of the other, one foot in front of the other, just kind of on a daily basis asking, what does it mean to follow Jesus today? Um, what does it mean to not maybe have every answer for every question, but to still sort of move forward in faith, uh, following sort of the foundation of everything that God is doing uh, in Jesus himself? And so what we're doing is we're going through different topics and kind of asking for, you know, these specific things, what does it look like for us to do that well? And uh, the first three weeks, we tried to lay just a good foundation of who Jesus was, what he was doing, um, when we really sort of look back at him in a robust way, maybe getting rid of churchy, fluffy language, or just the things that we've received, and trying to ask really in a deep sense, um, who, who is Jesus? And last week, Julie talked about uh, creation, uh, and today, we are going to be talking about the topic of sin. Um, now, uh, as we've been doing throughout the series, we would love for you uh, to give us some questions, and we will, uh, I'll do my best to respond to them after the sermon. Um, you know, I'm assuming we'll get more than we have time to, to answer. That's kind of been the, the pattern here so far, and, and that's great. And so uh, what we'll do is any questions we don't get to today, we'll try to respond to them in the week over uh, a video uh, of some kind that we'll put up on YouTube and uh, links to on social media and stuff. And so anyway, please send any questions you have, um, and uh, we will try to do our best to respond to them. Uh, go, you can go to our website, residentychurch.org, uh, to submit those questions. Uh, but yeah, today we're talking about sin, right? Now we're starting to really get in this place where we hone in on different issues, some of them, you know, not always fun to, to talk about. Uh, I had a friend, uh, and a few other people in the, in the room here know this person, um, and she would uh, like to, you know, she made it, she had a joke, like when you make a mistake or you do some really small bad thing, she would look at you and she'd be like, 
sinner. Like she'd kind of like just kind of throw that at you. Um, and it was a really funny joke be- because like, uh, you know, clearly we were like, this is not something we actually think is a big deal. But the, the joke was, you know, you get the point. It's kind of a label like that we throw on people sometimes when they do bad stuff that kind of sticks with you, right? It's like a dirty word. It's a four-letter word to describe somebody uh, that's actually more, more than four letters. Um, and she made a joke out of it. But the, the joke is funny because this is what we actually do to people in the church, right? And um, I think the, the church that we've sort of, that I've grown up in, I feel like I, I've observed that this often happens. The church sort of manages this topic of sin, which is, you know, it views as sort of essential to its view of the world um, in, in a couple of different ways. Um, and not so much sin, but sinners, like actual people. This is how I think the church often, you know, deals with that. First off is, is to sort of, you know, after identifying sinners, it creates barriers between them. Um, it sort of treats sinners as hostile or icky or the enemy in some way, right? They're dangerous, you know, but at, also at the same time, we're supposed to like, like love them and reach them, but they're dangerous and we have to kind of stay away from them, right? We have to kind of create these barriers to keep ourselves pure, right, from them and we kind of other these people, we kind of exclude them, and it's very fear-based a lot of times, and a lot of times it's sort of, you know, centered in on specific groups of people, right? Like, uh, you know, Muslim terrorists maybe, or the LGBTQ community a lot of times. Like, it's certain groups of people that the church has kind of said, we're going to create barriers among these particular sinners in order to kind of keep ourselves safe or pure or something. And the second way the church is sort of engaged with dealing with, you know, sinners, quote-unquote, is often through, like, politics and policy, right? That's kind of been the way that we, the church has thrown a lot of its energy, and this is certainly, I'm, I'm, I'm generalizing here, right? This is certainly not true of all the church, but a lot of spaces you see the church sort of trying to deal with what it sees as the problem of sin through legislating it, right? And sort of trying to, like, um, you know, uh, you know, manage sin by forcing people to sort of live a certain way through through policy, and a lot of energy and time gets thrown into that. And I'm actually, I'm a, I was a political science major in in college, so I actually really enjoy studying this stuff. And you can kind of see the development of it in the church, you know, over the last hundred years or so. And it leads to, you know, the, the culture wars, right? This sort of war between cultures, right? Like, what's the, you know, how should humans live? And Christians have sort of thrown ourselves into that, for better or for worse, a lot of times. And it has sort of, you know, been one of our ways to deal with this problem of sinners in the world. And so what we're saying, you know, when you look at sort of those two sort of big things that the church has often done to, this, to, this, to sinners in the world— what you find is a view of sin, I think, that the church holds oftentimes that is this. The real problem in the world is out there, and it's certain groups of people, and what we need to do is to keep ourselves pure and try to maybe legislate those other people to act in a Christian way so that we can sort of feel safe from them and sort of keep their impurity from getting on us, right? I, to me, at least, that's what it seems like is the motivation for a lot of that. Even if it's not sort of the, you know, it's not, it's not realized or no one would put it that way, it seems kind of clear to me that that's the goal. That's, that's sort of how we view sin or sinners in the church. Now, I think the generation of most people represented in the room, millennials, Gen Z, sort of has, you know, done a good job of recognizing this and sort of saying, you know, are we sure this is the right approach to this problem of sin that we in the church believe? Is this really what we want to kind of be known for? Um, and we you know, we kind of deconstruct that, right? Kind of using that word, right, as a, to kind of ask hard questions of it and be willing to throw some of that to the side and ask, are there new paths that we can walk in? 
But I think sometimes we also ask the question, well, do we deconstruct sin as a concept too, right? Should we, is, is sin the wrong way to think of everything and we can kind of just get rid of, you know, like the idea of sin altogether, right? And maybe if we got rid of that, then we would avoid this problem that we found ourselves in. And I'm sure a lot of us have grown up probably in more stable houses or neighborhoods, right? Where kind of, kind of sleepy, mostly peaceful, where we rarely saw real darkness, right? Or if we did, you know, we didn't realize that was maybe what was going on. Um, And in that context, I think that a lot of us are, you know, I I myself come out of this context. It is true a lot of times. It feels like, um, you know, maybe sin isn't such a big deal, right? Um, You you find that, you know, people you were told were dangerous or icky, you actually get to know them, you're like, they're actually not that bad. Like, that doesn't, is not how I would describe them after hanging out with them. Um, and, you know, your, your experience doesn't really validate what you heard from the church. And in that context, it's true. I think evil and sin can maybe seem a little bit outdated. If that's what sin is, it's just icky, gross people out there, dangerous people who you don't want to get their sin on you, then, yeah, it might make sense that we would down to deconstruct that idea. But I think it's important, just kind of we start the sermon out here today, that we don't get rid of the, the concept of sin or the idea that God does something about it, okay? Now, sin, it does seem harmless, right? When it's just some fun you're having with some friends, maybe, right? Or, or it's something that kind of feels good, right? If that's, you know, if that's all sin was, was having fun or feeling good, you know, sure, it makes sense. But we end up trivializing sin when we think about it that way. And I think, again, there's been a major change in our lifetime, right? Maybe you grew up in, in, you know, somewhere like me, right? In a place where you rarely saw real darkness. But there's been a big change over the course of our lives that I think has sort of brought us face to face with something to which, you know, sin is really the, only the best way to describe it. And that's the rise of the internet and social media, right? Something that can kind of take us out of the, the, you know, the sleepy, peaceful, you know, neighborhoods or towns that we mostly grew up in and brought us face to face with what's going on in, in the rest of the world and maybe, or maybe even under our noses that we don't realize, right? So for example, we live in the Me Too age, right? The hashtag Me Too age, it kind of has, it's kind of really made its way through almost all American institutions at this point. And it, it sort of brought us to grips with how common rape and assault and abuse are, right? It's sort of a, a normal part of, of human life. We're finding that this, this is a very common thing, and we probably know many people, who, maybe we don't realize this, but who have themselves experienced that or been perpetrators of it, perhaps, right? And, and it makes us rethink stuff maybe that we did grow up thinking was just a joke, right, or something we even did maybe or we saw celebrated in, in media is actually kind of awful or terrible. And we have to ask ourselves the question, have I contributed to this maybe in some way perhaps? Or have I experienced this in some way? You know, did I, was I told this wasn't actually an evil thing that happened to me and so I brushed it under the rug, but then I was like, no, that was an evil thing. And I actually am still dealing with the effects of that on my life now. Or the way that which like Facebook Live has shown us you know, things that happen in our own city that we maybe didn't realize, right? Like, just think about, Julie and I live just a couple, like a couple minutes away from where Philando Castile uh, was shot, right? Now, this is something we probably never would have found out about if not for Facebook Live, right? We, and, and George Floyd, right? This is someone capturing this on Facebook Live, stuff that we probably never would have heard about, maybe read it in a police blot or something, but when we actually see what's taking place a lot of times under our noses in our own city, we're kind of appalled by it, right? It, it brings us face to face with sort of, you know, 
have what we've heard about, you know, the cities we live in or the country we live in, is it actually what we thought, you know? When we actually see, you know, what, what's actually out there that we're not sheltered from, like, do we actually come into contact with something that is, like, you know, hard to use any other word to describe other than evil? And, and, and then we find out, other, you know, horrors in other parts of the world. The, the first big one I remember, maybe this dates me a little bit, which is crazy to think at this point, but how many of you remember the Coney 2012 thing? right? Okay, only a couple of hands went up. That's wild. Okay, that was, that was nine years ago, people. Okay, that was like the first viral, uh, like, sort of, like, thing that I can remember where, where we were being brought in, you know, into contact with some sort of genocide or some horror, some mass horror going on in some country. It's like the only thing that matters in this country, right? But we're completely unaware of because we're, you know, thousands of miles away from it. But the internet has a lot, you know, brought that to our attention. And we're just appalled. Like, oh, really? People like this still exist, huh? I, I had no clue. But that's horrible, right? And there's been many other sort of, you know, online viral sort of movements ever since then that have kind of cropped up because of that, right? So, so what we're finding is, is like we're seeing what's going on in the rest of the world, you know, visual, visually, and we're kind of like, what the heck is this? This is definitely different than what I, the world I thought I was growing up in. Or maybe it's even just like going on in the dark corners of the internet, right? Looking, look at, read the comments, you know, to videos and stuff, and you're just like, how could anyone, you know, write that up, right? How, 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 did that, how did that come out of somebody, right? I can't imagine anyone ever saying that in public, but it just seems like when there's anonymity involved, like, people are willing to say some pretty awful things. Or maybe you've seen it even on, like, Facebook, you know, people you know, and you're like, how, where did that come from, right? Like, that's kind of what I think the internet has brought to our, our shores as people, and, and we've witnessed whole nations and governments be sort of like almost possessed by stuff, right? When you look at it and you're like, that is sort of beyond the whole experience of what I can imagine a group of humans getting together to do, right? We talk a lot about how when humans get together, they accomplish so many great things. I just described the ad for most things, right? When we get together, think about all the good things we can accomplish. When you look at human history, when humans get together to try to accomplish things, a lot of bad stuff really happens, right? Nazi Germany, Great example. It almost feels like how could a whole group of people get possessed by something that just seems so, you know, beyond our ability to describe what is happening right now. It just seems beyond what, what we've experienced maybe where we've grown up. If there was such a thing as sin, wouldn't this be what we would call that, right? If something beyond human capacity to, you know, to go and do something horrible, right, beyond, the, beyond what we're used to, like, wouldn't that what we would want to have language to describe as sin. We have to have the ability to put, put language to stuff like that, I think. Right? And it, to me, it's unsatisfying to just say, you know, oh, when we, when we find these things, it's just, you know, these are just tragedies, you know, of circumstance. So sort of like some bad stuff mixed together and something terrible happened. I don't know if you guys saw the, the, the Joker movie that came out a few years ago right? And it was kind of framed as like a cautionary tale. That's how I took it, at least. You know, of a, a guy who has some mental disability and like has some unfortunate circumstances where people treat him poorly because of it. And he kind of snaps at the end of the movie and becomes like a murderer, right? Just kind of a psychopathic, crazy person that, uh, you know, presumably Batman will come fight eventually. Spoiler alert, Batman's not actually in the movie, really. But, um, you, know, you know what I mean? Like, that's kind of the story. It's kind of framed as like a cautionary tale, right? And we do see stuff like that happen all the time. You know, your, your genes plus your circumstance, you know, just sometimes, that, you know, unfortunately results in something terrible happening. But, but to me, like, 
it, you know, that, that just puts on the same level of like, well, I have bad genes, so if I eat a lot of butter and sugar, I'll have a heart attack someday. And that would be really unfortunate, right? I don't think those two things are the same thing, right? I think one is clearly different than the other, right? One is, needs a category, you know, to, a word to describe it that goes beyond just, you know, just unfortunate, you know, tragedy of circumstance. And I think that's why we need to keep this idea of sin and why it's good for us as Christians to understand that, like, the world out there, it is darker oftentimes than we think it is. And if we, are, if we throw that out, then we don't really have a good way to talk about or hope that something can be done about that. And ultimately, that's what the cross is about, right? The cross is God's answer to this problem of evil in the world, okay? Now, we're going to talk about today, like, how Jesus encountered this stuff, because he did. Jesus lived in a world that was, you know, believed in sin and evil, right, and experienced all the same things that we experience in our world today, right? The stuff the internet maybe has made us aware of or we've experienced in our own lives that just, you know, seems like sin is the right word to describe this, whether it's, you know, rape or murder or racism or injustice. All of these things are very normal, part of the fabric of the world that Jesus is doing his ministry in. And the word sinner was used to describe people very often, Okay, so here, here's an example. This is actually one, a couple weeks ago we used this same passage, Luke 15, 1 to 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Okay, so it's kind of like they're muttering to themselves, like, who is this guy? So what do they mean in, in their own context? Well, again, we still see this as kind of a label, right, to describe groups of people that you're not supposed to be hanging out with. All right, it's a bit nebulous when you really, really go into it. Actually, it's often just a pejorative term to describe people of the land, right? So kind of common, um, non-elite people. It also could be referred to Gentiles and so non-Jewish people. Um, and, and often that would be thrown to describe the Romans, right? Or the sort of the pagan hordes um, who were, were, you know, were, were kind of coming in and ruining, thing, ruining things for Israel, like kind of seen as the real enemy in the world. Now, it's likely that the Pharisees sort of meant by it those who didn't follow their sort of, their sort of stricter interpretation of Torah. And, and it maybe became a technical term, you know, for them even. But they certainly would apply it to people, you know, who, you know, specifically openly flouted Torah, like prostitutes um, and tax collectors, but also just people who weren't kind of committed to their sort of, you know, radical agenda of what it means to sort of remain pure. And so essentially what it, what it meant, I think the best way to understand how they use that term, is that it's someone who's impure by sort of the standard of the speaker, right? And so in order to remain undefiled, a sort of strict line of association was drawn. Like these social barriers need to be put up. Like, for example, not eating meals with them. And this is actually a big reason that the Pharisees dismissed Jesus' movement out of hand. Like, well, he's kind of regularly has this pattern of getting together and eating with tax collectors and sinners. Like, you know, how can we take this guy seriously? He's clearly, you know, getting all, his imp- all that impurity upon him now. And that, that, that shows what type of movement he actually is. And so they saw this sort of commitment to this manufactured purity um, as the way to rescue and creating these firm barriers would help them to do that. And then trying their best that they could, the Pharisees are kind of like a, probably best understood as like a social pressure group like today, um, of legislating sort of what impurity people could kind of come into contact with. Now, Jesus saw this as sort of a major problem, okay? And this is a big part of his ministry, is responding to this. 
But he never does so by saying, like, well, the idea of sin is wrong. Or he doesn't even really ever push back on the idea that the people he's hanging out with are sinners. He doesn't really seem to, like, challenge that. But what he does do is he wants people to, to do two things. One, he wants to challenge them to rethink sin and how you deal with it. And two, he wants to give a new solution to it. Okay, so what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about those two things that Jesus talks about when he talks to people about sin in his world and sort of then consider what it means for us to really follow Jesus in that. Okay, so the first part here, rethinking uh, sin. I think maybe the best place in all of the Gospels to go for this, we find in, in Mark 7, 18 to 20. Let me read it. Are you so dull, he asks, this is Jesus, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into, the, into their hearts, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. So first off, he's saying sin isn't something that's out there that you can somehow catch on you, like it's a virus or something like that. And then once you catch it, now you have it on you or something like that, and you might go spread it to others. All right, if, you're not, if you're not careful to eat with the right people or something like that, you know, you're, you're coming in, into danger of ca- contracting this virus or something. These barriers that you set up, they don't do anything to keep sin away. That's what he's saying. Okay, something, the evil, or sin is something that comes up from inside, right? And, and, and what you see is this kind of fruit of that. Okay, so it's like soil, right? You know, how, you know how, like, sometimes if you're trying to grow something, but it's in contaminated soil, like, you'll notice that in the fruit. The fruit will turn out to be bad. But it's got nothing to do with the fruit, necessarily. It's because the soil is bad. And you've got to deal with the problem in the soil itself. You have to treat it in the soil, now, I think it's clear that Jesus thinks these Pharisees bear the same fruit, and it kind of indicates that no matter how much they wash themselves or obey the Sabbath, their soil is just as contaminated as everybody else's. And so what they were doing was just kind of like bearing bad fruit, but going around and like painting it. To, you know, it's like a, a bad apple, but they you know, spray paint it shiny red, and they're like, look how good this fruit is, when in reality, like, no, the, their fruit is just as bad as anybody else's. Now, Jesus isn't saying anything new to sort of locate the problem in the heart. This is actually a theme you find in the Old Testament often. The prophets talk about the heart very often. And a good example of this is Jeremiah 17, 9 to 10. This is the message version, actually, which I really enjoy for this one. Uh, Jeremiah says, uh, or God is saying through Jeremiah, the heart is hopelessly dark and deceitful, a puzzle that no one can figure out. But I, God, search the heart and examine the mind. I get to the heart of the human. I get to the root of things. I treat them as they really are, not as they pretend to be. Okay, so Jesus is just picking up on what God had always said was true of sin. And a couple things I think become clear about his theology of sin in this, okay? Uh, and, and what we see in the fruit that he describes when we think about him. So first off, you know, what is sin? Well, it's something that harms people, right? It distorts the shalom, the peace of God's creation, right? It wrecks it. It takes what God has created and disassembles it. It rips it apart, maybe tries to rearrange it in its own order or something like that, okay? But what it's doing is it's undoing the peace of God's creation. And we see this in some of the things that he mentions, right? So theft, right? Taking something from someone that they need, right? To survive, perhaps. Taking it away from them so that they no longer have it. Leaving them now in, in trouble, leaving them vulnerable in some way. 
or folly. Remember, we did a whole sermon series on wisdom uh, last spring, and we talked about the ways in which, you know, folly sort of, you know, messes with God's world. That was a big point of the book of Proverbs, is folly can have very dangerous effects, um, okay? Or, or adultery, right? It harms the heart of someone you said you loved, right? You'd, you'd committed to them, you told them I love you, and then you sort of took that vulnerability from them, and you, you stepped all over it, Right? So, right? It's not just about you enjoying yourself. It's about actually having a, a, an impact on someone else. All the way to, to murder itself, right? Literally ending someone's life, right? right? Taking away someone's uh, uh, ability to live yourself, claiming you have the power to do that. Okay, but it goes deeper than this. And this is the second thing we think we learn about sin from Jesus here, is it's not just about harm, okay? It's about who we are and what we're capable of because of what we show is true in our hearts, oftentimes. That's what the fruit is showing us, okay? The fruit shows something about who we are on the inside, maybe how we view ourselves or the world around us, right? And so when the pattern of certain fruit comes out over and over again, you can start to get a, a sense for how, you know, deep down, even if it's, it's subtle or it's unknown, people kind of view themselves or the world, okay? So if it's sexual immorality, it's saying to the creator, I can order creation how I want. I know you said this is how, like, you know, you wanted us to live, but I think it'd be better if I made that decision and reordered it myself. I know better than you do, God. Or if it's greed, it says, I deserve this thing that God has not blessed me with, and I'm the one that gets to decide what I deserve or don't deserve. If it's murder, which Jesus redefines as just as hatred in the Sermon on the Mount, it's that I find someone else's life to be of no value. I get to make the decision on who is worth living or who isn't. If it's adultery, which Jesus redefines as lust in the Sermon on the Mount, it says that you can treat someone else as an object, right? You can rob them of their dignity, and you can say what God has given worth and value to is actually something I can just have be a plaything for myself in my mind. If it's arrogance, it's a heart that's saying, I'm a different kind of person than everybody else. I'm better than them. I'm actually above them. Now, we might not talk about sin in our society very much anymore today, but I think we see this, this approach by the Pharisees and what Jesus is challenging or critiquing in Mark here, we find it all over the place, both in the church and outside of it, okay? I think we're, we're still fine calling out other people as sinners, okay? Even if we don't use that language, right? And, and so, like, a lot of times, people who leave the church, they just think, oh, the church is the problem in the world. Religion is the problem in the world. If we could just get rid of that and those people, everything would be so much better. That actually just seems like the same thing to me, right? We're locating the problem in a group of people, and if we could just get rid of those people, everything would be better in the world, okay? Um, and, 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 and since we don't have religious language to describe things anymore, our religion as a society is basically just politics. We kind of root how we view sin into politics themselves, right? And so, you know, so now the groups of people, right, that we might need to view as the problem is the other political party, right? So if you're, uh, if you're a conservative, it's, it's, it's liberals, or if you're a, if, but if you're a Democrat, it's Republicans maybe or something like that. Um, and just think about like, the rhetoric that gets used to describe other people on like, cable news or social media, right? Just think how awfully they're described, like how idiotic they're described, how evil they are, how every intention, every single little thing that they do 
from the time they get up in the morning to the time they go to bed, is making our world worse, <laughs> right? And we even use language sometimes to describe them as like, they're going to end the world. That's how we talk. We use very apocalyptic language to describe people in our other political tribe a lot of times. Like, we literally fear for them ending the world because of, of their evil. Or just think about the religious fervor that sort of goes into cancel culture, right? The way that we sort of deal with those who have sinned in some way, right? We cut them off from society. We, we sort of make them atone. We scour their social media to find any examples of impurity from them. Um, we, we excommunicate people. People lose their jobs. They lose friends. They lose opportunity. They get sort of cut off from community. And it, it all looks exactly like the thing that Jesus is confronting in his ministry, and that the church, you know, I think we all agree the church has done too, right? We just find it all over the place. It's not, just, it's not just in the church, it's sort of everywhere. And all we give people is hostility, and we're all sick of it, right? But we don't really know what else to do, because it's just the only way we can really think about things. I think Jesus would say that this, sh- this shows fruit of sort of hatred and malice, right? And it shows that the soil is contaminated kind of all over the place. This is a problem that everybody shares, and so to avoid this conclusion, I think that's not like no one is, you know, maybe aware that this might be the case, but we, we try really hard to admit that we're not a part of the problem, that we're not sinners, like, you know, maybe, you know, we, 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 we paint our fruit, you know, bright, shiny red as much as we can, try to, re, you know, spin it so it's actually a good thing, and we're, we're good at explaining it away. We, we might say something like, sure, you know, I might be a bit of a mess. I think people are pretty aware that they're a bit of a mess today. And I might need some therapy, but when it really comes down to what's really wrong in the world, I'm not involved in any of that stuff. All the stuff that, you know, my problems aren't really harming anybody, and I can get them under control, just give me some time. It's nothing like the problems in other people, okay? Whatever they're doing, you know, I'm not a part of that at all, so give me a break. It's those people out there. Or we've, you know how we, like, we love personality tests? We use personality tests as a way to sort of get around, you know, uh, admitting that we've actually sinned in some way or messed up in some way. You know, it's like, I can blow, it's okay for me to blow people off because I'm an introvert, right? So it's actually good for me to do it. They should sort of understand that they'd be sinning if they, you know, made me come to this thing I said I was going to come to earlier, right? Or like, I can be pushy, but it's, I'm an Enneagram 3, so like you know, cut, cut me some slack. I'm just, do, you know, living out my personality, right? We, we use personality tests. We love these things, but sometimes we use them as a way to sort of get around, you know, describing actual ways we hurt people. Have you noticed that? We're really good at sort of getting around the problem in ourselves. And, um, and, and, and like, I think Jesus would call this arrogance. He would say, this is an example of a fruit of arrogance, which again shows the soil is contaminated, right? To say, you know, the rules that I'm putting on other people don't really apply to me, so quit coming at, don't at me, okay? Like, that's what Jesus, I think, is, would be saying to this. And I think for Jesus, creating these barriers that we're so good at doing to keep people away and to sort of, you know, cloister us in with the other good people, the people that are like us, it doesn't really solve anything. All it does is it sort of just, I don't know, it seals in, like, the, the ways in which we hurt people into bubbles. And so now all these different bubbles have their own examples of this. And it causes us to sort of turn a blind eye to the ways in which, you know, the people that we decide are the good people, the peer people, like they do the exact same things we see on the other side. But it makes us turn a blind eye to that, right? I think we see that all the time. And we're just, I'm just like, how can you not see that this person who's a champion, you know, for you is doing the same stuff that you criticize this person for doing, uh, you know, 
at some earlier point, right? We do that all the time because we've sort of created this world in which good exists in the bubble of people like me and evil exists in the bubble of people not like me, all right? And it doesn't let us actually look at the world as it actually is. It keeps us from seeing the world as it actually is. And Jesus is saying that when we refuse to see the world as it actually is, we're being deluded in some way. I think Jesus would actually say, and we don't have time to get into this today really, but he would say that's the work of the Satan, kind of deluding our view of the world. If we, sign, if we find the same problem over and over again, maybe the problem isn't a group of people, maybe it's, a, it's people, maybe it's in all of us. And Alexander Solzhenitsyn has this famous line where he talks about this. The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Jesus is calling us to recognize that this is where the problem lies. Because the common denominator here, going back to the Mark passage, is human hearts, right? It's something we all happen to have. We're all the same. And Jesus is saying that creating barriers or calling other people the problem doesn't really do anything to fix it. It might manage it to some degree, right? And it gives us something to put fervor into, right? And some good can occasionally come out of that, perhaps. Um, But it's not going to really solve the problem because it doesn't get to the root of it. And this is why Jesus is doing something about it, and God is doing something about it. And this is why it matters that we care about this too. But we have to deal with this problem in the way that Jesus does, all right? And this gets to his sort of solution to the problem, all right? Uh, Jesus doesn't view sin, it's clear, he doesn't view sin as a threat to him and his purity or as his safety. It actually seems more like he views people with these hearts as, as hurt, or have been hurt in some way by someone else's sin and needing rescue, needing to be regathered again. And ultimately, that's what the cross is about. Again, remember, we, we talked about Jesus' death, and we talked about how Passover is sort of the imagery that Jesus wants tied to what he's doing. This Passover, the Israel being set free from slavery, from oppression by Pharaoh and Egypt, being rescued or delivered from that. That's what Jesus wants his, his death to be sort of associated with. And I think, I think this is an important distinction, and we're going to talk more about this, I think, later on, but salvation, when we talk about it as Christians, I don't think it's so much, I don't think it's right to think about it as a rescue from hell, right? I think it's, it's better to think of it as a rescue from the power or domain of sin itself, right? Exercising authority over us, right? Keeping us in bondage in some way. I think that's how we ought to think about uh, the rescue or deliverance that comes from sin, right? Because that's what Jesus is talking about uh, when, when he ties his, his death to uh, the Passover. Now, we'll talk more about that in another sermon. Don't worry, we'll do a whole sermon on heaven and hell uh, later on. So I don't want to get too much into that, but I think sort of when we think about sin this way, it helps us to understand, I think, the cross in a little bit more nuanced way. And so what Jesus did because this was his view is he sought people out to rescue them from their sin and other people's sin too, right? And it shows us that Jesus saw people, saw sinners as valuable, as people to be pursued, not to be destroyed, not to be canceled, not to build barriers up in front of, as worth knowing and as worth respecting. 
And actually, remember the passage we started out earlier today where we just kind of use as an example to, to show the Pharisees using this word as sinner and, and just kind of showing how they are using this to create barriers and they see Jesus as, you know, worth dismissing because he's creating these barriers. This is actually, like I said, it's a passage we talked about a few weeks ago. And I want to go back to it again um, because I think it's, again, it's really important to help us understand what Jesus saw himself as up to. All right, and that's this idea of Jesus calling himself a good shepherd, a, 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 um, uh, evoking this imagery of God come uh, as a shepherd to regather sheep again. Okay, so let me just read it again. Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, if you're here or heard this sermon from a couple weeks ago, you remember the background of all of this. It's not just a, a, an analogy that Jesus is using. It's a, it's a parable that is has this foundation of the whole you know, story the prophets are kind of telling um, uh, that Jesus is sort of sees his ministry as sort of standing upon. And this is why, again, just as an aside, and we're actually going to talk about Scripture next week, and I'm going to talk about this a lot. It's really important for us to read Scripture as part of this un- unfolding story, right? So when we see Jesus, for example, do things, and it seems to you know, send some warning bells off, or not warning bells, I guess like you know, sirens off, this sounds like it's part of the story that we read in other places, it it's supposed to do that because it gives us sort of context, you know, to, to, to gives weight to what Jesus is doing, okay? And what we're seeing is Jesus's sort of uh, response to sin, right? That to come and regather people together. If these are people the Pharisees see as sinners to be kept barriers from, Jesus's view is far different. It's a view that Yahweh had. These are lost sheep. They need to be gathered back together, together again, to be brought back into the fold of Israel. And this is something that God had always said he was going to do, now, we talked about the Isaiah passage, Isaiah 40, uh, a couple weeks ago, but this is, again, like I said, this is all over the prophets. So another place where we see this theme pop up is in Ezekiel, uh, which uh, is not on the screen, sorry, but let me read it for you. Ezekiel 36, 24 to 26. For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. All right, so, so think about some of the words that pop up in there, right? Uh, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. That's the same imagery of Jesus as the shepherd coming to gather back the people again, lost, sort of scattered because of their sin or other people's sin, regardless, it had wrecked God's creation, and Jesus was coming to regather them again once more. And as a part of that, what he's doing is he is giving them a heart transplant, all right? He is showing value, love, and gentleness and tenderness, calling people to come in so their hearts can be remade, right? That they can be cleansed, that their hardened hearts can be removed, that something can be done about this contaminated soil so that the fruit that grows from it now is good fruit, that instead of wrecking God's world, actually restores the peace and shalom to it again, once more. 
This is what, what Jesus is evoking. And I wish, to kind of go back to where we started the sermon off today, I wish the church had been more, concer- I wish we were more concerned with this than we are sometimes about creating barriers or trying to legislate good fruit out of people. Instead, we should be sort of a part, we should really see it as our goal as the church to be different than the rest of the world, to be going out and kind of being a part of what God is doing through Jesus to gather people back in again to sort of go to the root of the problem, right? I really think, and again, I'm not trying to say the church has not done this at all, right? I do think the church is still committed to this, um, but I wish like the church would have been far more of a force for good in society, I think, over our lifetimes if we would have seen the commitment to this first over anything else. Now, we, how do we practically walk in this? Right? What, what does Jesus give us as a way to sort of practically walk in this? Okay, I know that's a good, que- good question, and we've gotten some questions around this. Like, some of these are a little, at, some of the stuff we've talked about is a little abstract, and it's, it's good for us. I talked at the beginning of the sermon about how, like, uh, what does it look like for us day by day to just follow Jesus without having everything figured out? Okay? And I want to speak to that here a little bit as we close the sermon. And I want to go back to, again, we did this in the very first sermon of the series, to the beginning of Jesus' proclamation of what he's up to when he kind of comes and he starts this whole program off of what he's doing, you know, announcing the coming of the kingdom. And, and that's this. He says, the time has come. This, the first thing he really says is his ministry begins. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the, the, the starting point of Jesus' message repent. And I think he sees repentance not as a one-time thing, but as a sort of daily practice, just like exercise, something that we commit ourselves to every single day, understanding that it's a part of the daily habit of following Jesus. It's not a one-time decision we make, it's an everyday decision that we make to be willing to examine our own hearts. Remember, we talked in that first sermon about how in that time and place, repent would have kind of been understood as turn from your agenda and believe in me would have been seen as sort of follow mine instead, follow this new agenda that I'm giving you. Repentance in and of itself doesn't necessarily change the soil. God is the one that does that. But repentance is us turning so we can go and examine our own hearts to see, you know, what places we can still ask God to come and change so that we can, again, be a part of bringing sort of the good fruit that mends God's creation back again as opposed to the bad fruit that tears it apart, right? Um, and, And this is Israel's problem, right? Remember we talked about how they saw that the problem in the world oftentimes is sinners or the Romans or other pagans, right? And Jesus is calling them to move away from that view of the world and to take his, his view of the world, which is that we're all sort of a part of the same problem. And, and, and the way that God is going to fix that is by redeeming or transforming hearts. That's what his message was to Israel. It's the same that he's calling us to as well, to turn from all of that. Because sin is real. It messes with God's creation, okay? But instead of starting with other people who you can see as a part of some problem in the world, consider starting with yourself first. Consider asking, you know, what, 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 how do I contribute to the world, the problems in the world? You know, what, what are ways that I am, you know, maybe look like? It doesn't mean that what you, when you identify sin in the world that it's not sin, but start by asking yourself, what are ways I maybe look like that as well? And how can I stop myself from responding in the same way that they did, that, that, that clearly hurt somebody, that clearly, clearly wrecked the shalom of God's world, the peace of God's world? How can I make sure that I am not contributing to that? Now that question, asking that question, I think is evidence of this redeemed heart that Jesus is talking about. 
but we need to kind of continue to like um, exercise and practice that to, so that it continues to, to flow out of us more and more and more. It's just like anything else. We have to practice or exercise that so the fruit will grow, you know, big and strong. We get to play a part in that as well. And so we got to make a practice of it. What am I doing? How am I responding to or rejecting God's coming? You know, how am I bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, Right? How am I being arrogant? How am I seeing other people as the problem? How can I start with me? And then invite them to that message as opposed to inviting them to, you know, get away from me, please. Right? That is what Jesus is calling to. And, and, and we as Christians, if we're going to follow Jesus day by day, step by step, this is the place for us to start. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we thank you that you, you come and get to the heart of things. Lord, and, and I pray that we as a church would be willing to uh, go to the heart of problems with you as well, Lord, as we follow you truly, Lord. Um, help us to know what it looks like in different situations, Lord. I know it's not always clear uh, to know what it means to repent um, or what it means to follow you. What fruit, fruit in any given situation uh, might be exactly the one that is needed to sort of uh, reconstruct uh, the, the peace of the world, Lord, but um, help us through your spirit to have wisdom in doing that. Help us to believe that what, what, what Ezekiel talks about and what Jesus is evoking in his ministry is true of us as well. As we've been gathered back into the fold um, by uh, your son, Lord, that we have been given new hearts. And I pray that we would live out of those as opposed to living in patterns that we have seen in humans for all of human history, God. Help us to have discernment and wisdom as we do that. And as we do, help us to be people who reconstruct your world, at least in our spheres of influence, Lord. Um, by, by displaying fruit in keeping with repentance and transformation and, and inviting other people to be a part of the same. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So now we'll have uh, some time for some question response. Uh, do we have any questions? We do. Okay. Um, I'm going to combine a couple here. Uh, so the question is kind of, what does the Bible say sin is or what does Res City believe sin is? Mm-hmm. Um, and another question asked, are sin and evil the same thing? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I would say a short answer for sin is that, like, like, like I, kind of, I kind of mentioned this earlier in the sermon, right? God creates the world, it's ordered, it's good, right? And Julie talked last week about how, you know, part of what our you know, core beliefs of what the creation story are is that the world has been ordered a certain way by the creator God. I think the best way to think about sin is when humans come along and and think we can order this world in the, in the way that we think is best. It's sort of like we are going to play God ourselves, and we're going to take the order that God has made, and we're going to move some things around maybe, right? Or we're going to come and just tear it all down. Like we don't, you know, we're against this idea of this order, okay? I think that's ultimately where, where sin comes out of, is this sort of impulse in us to want to try to reorder the world in our own image as opposed to the image that the creator God has put in place. Now, because the world's been created uh, by God to work a certain way, when we do that, like, it really harms God's world, and people are hurt, whether it's us or other people around us, when we, when we make a habit of that, right? When that becomes the normal practice of humans, and that's what has happened in, in the fall, right, uh, that, that we go back to in the book of Genesis, is this sort of has become the pattern that we all live in now, right? Um, and, and so I think that's how I think of sin, is, is that. Um, yeah, I, I think it's better to start with an idea of what it is than just, here's a list of all the sins. I think it's better for us to sort of start there. Yeah, um, 
as you know, in regards to sin and evil, this is a, I think this is a good question. Um, like I said, I w- wish I had another hour, uh, and I would have gone to a completely different place, and we would have talked all about evil in the Satan and powers of sin and darkness, which sort of corrupt, and they're a part of this as well. And I think, you know, it's important for us to, to think through that. Again, you know, like, just like we kind of do with sin sometimes, we do away with the idea of, you know, dark spiritual forces that sort of come in and are a part of this too, right? Um, but when I, I think of evil, I think that's a good place to start. And Jesus, this is a huge part of Jesus' ministry, uh, is responding to uh, the Satan, right? The, the evil one. And to him, that was like the real enemy that we need to locate the problem, you know? Like, if we're going to talk about who the real problem is, it's not Rome, it's not the sinners, you know, this is the place we can root a lot of that and understand we're a part of the same system. We're under the rule or reign or dominion of, of this character, of these dark spiritual forces, and our liberation or rescue is from them. Um, so I think that's a good way to think about evil or sort of the, what Paul calls in place, like, the domain of darkness, uh, for example, um, so I, that's how I would nuance those things. We become a part of evil through sin, but evil is still maybe something that can be, you know, talked about beyond that as well. Uh, the next question is, if sin seems to be a heart problem, why would the law be given if it mm. doesn't actually have power to change your heart? Oh boy, who <laughs> wants to stay till six o'clock tonight? Um, okay, so the short answer, I would say, I think is probably just... Um, the law, so, okay, when, when, if you read, like, the Exodus account, like, Israel comes out of slavery, right, and they've been liberated and set free, but they finally meet up with God, and it's very clear right off the bat that God is not, he's not just someone you can kind of cuddle up with. Like, he is, like, he is far beyond them, right? And so what, what happens is these barriers are put in place sort of to, to sort of bring in this, these people, Israel, who, again, are the victims of evil and oppression, but themselves, like we've talked about, are kind of still filled with the same things, the same problems. And so the law is sort of given as a way, um, I think, both for them to interact with God, a very holy God, but then also to sort of give them a wisdom and a path and understanding of ways we can, we can walk and that can kind of keep this, you know, that can give us a, a, an identity and a sort of path to walk that keeps us from, you know, partaking in evil that really messes with God's world. Um, and, and, and helps us to think through what it looks like to follow God as well. So that's a very, I think, short you know, answer that's, <laughs> that I would give for what, what the law is. Um, like I said, this is, this is the type of thing Christians have been asking for a very long time, trying to figure out like, what is the role of the law. And Paul talks a lot about you know, the law in, in, in relation to the gospel. Uh, and, and sometimes it can be said as this big antithesis. And you know, overall, I don't think that's necessarily the right way to think about it. Although, something greater than the law has come in Jesus. Like, um, the, 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 the heart uh, transformation that God talks about in Ezekiel is supposed to kind of uh, take us to a place that the law, you know, could, could get us close to, but not quite there. Great. We have some more questions, but I think um, for sake of time, we'll answer them in a video this week and okay. put that out there. Great. Thank you, everybody. Uh, appreciate uh, the questions, as always. I love getting to respond to them. And, and give my best you know, guess. I am not the one with all the answers. I'm sure I say things that are wrong. I try my best not to, but I'm just trying. So anyway, I hope that the answers are, you know, the, the responses are satisfactory. Um,